I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Someday, we will finally prosecute George W. Bush for his dereliction of duty before September 11th, 2001. Or more likely... Our descendants will read in history books of Bush's culpability, of his malfeasance, of his abandonment of this nation in its time of need, if there are history books, if there are descendants. And whichever happens, it will be understood that it all began to happen on November 9th, 2022, and initially, nobody noticed. Three weeks ago, the United States government declassified a 31-page memorandum for the record of a meeting in the Oval Office in the White House, hosted by President Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney and four other staffers with 10 guests, 10 members of the 9-11 Commission. The date of that meeting was April 29, 2004. Bush and Cheney invited the Commission members to ask anything they wanted about 9-11, And though their answers have been referred to in the more than 17 years that have ensued, they have never before been seen by the American public. I did not know this had happened until yesterday. It was written up by the news site Business Insider. It had been written up by the Intercept site on the 15th. The Intercept's version got 31 retweets. Jeremy Scahill of the Intercept wrote that it had happened quietly, That word does not begin to describe the silence with which it happened, with which it was received, with which it is still being received today. Bush's words in this declassified document are beyond damning. They are confessional. 
They are, even at this distance of time and national tone, shocking. They constitute proven fact that George W. Bush was warned for nearly eight months that something was coming here and that he did nothing, nothing but scoff and condescend and scheme to find an excuse to attack Iraq while more than 3,000 Americans were already targeted for death by Osama bin Laden and 300 million American senses of security was already targeted for destruction by Osama bin Laden and America's descent into paranoia and barbarism and scapegoating and torture was already timelined by Osama bin Laden. And that when confronted by the evidence of his own failures, his own arrogance, and the inarguable public record, President George W. Bush tried to lie his way out of it, repeatedly. Bush blamed others. Bush lied about others. Bush lied about the briefings. Bush, in short, confirmed virtually everything that all of us had claimed, all of us who criticized him in 2004, in 2003, in 2002, in 2001. Most of us were mocked. Some of us had our livelihoods threatened. Some of us had our lives threatened. And somehow George W. Bush walked away with a nonsensical excuse that is still largely supported by a structure of rationalizations and lies and imbecilities. They are best summarized by an analogy I first made on the air in 2006. History still somehow gives Ronald Reagan credit for the release of the American hostages in Iran, even though that took place on the first day of Reagan's presidency. Yet history still somehow absolves George W. Bush of any blame for 9-11, even though that took place on the 235th day of Bush's presidency. From this document, quote, Chairman Kane asked about the president's reaction to the August 6th PDB, the president's daily briefing. Quoting Bush's reply, they saw threats overseas. He asked CIA to analyze threats in America. There was only one reference to threats in America during my presidency to that point, and he had asked for it. Not one arrived at his desk. They didn't see any actionable intelligence. Al-Qaeda was dangerous, that it was a problem to be dealt with, he knew that, unquote. George Bush lied to the 9-11 Commission. He wrote history anew. He wrote the August 6th PDB anew, which not only was not about threats overseas, it was famously titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. The sixth paragraph of the August 6th PDB reads, quote, Al-Qaeda members, including some who are U.S. citizens, have resided in or traveled to the U.S. for years, and the group apparently maintains a support structure that could aid attacks. That was not about threats overseas. Bush lied to the 9-11 Commission. The ninth paragraph Quote, FBI information indicates patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks, including recent surveillance of federal buildings in New York. That was not about threats overseas. Bush lied to the 9-11 Commission. The seventh paragraph of the August 6th PDB, quote, a clandestine source said in 1998 that a bin Laden cell 
in New York was recruiting Muslim American youth for attacks. Bin Laden wanted to hijack a U.S. aircraft to gain the release of blind Sheikh Umar Abdul al-Rahman and other U.S.-held extremists, unquote. But to 9-11 Commissioner Richard Benvenisti, according to the just declassified document, Bush said, quote, we were aware that bin Laden had sympathizers in the United States as to cells. No one ever said that to him. Bush lied to Commissioner Benveniste of bin Laden cell in New York. Bush then said he couldn't recall people walking in here and worrying about cells in the United States. Not one PDB was commenting on a threat in America. A cell in New York hijacking a U.S. aircraft. Suspicious activity consistent with preparations for hijackings. Bush again lied to 9-11 Commissioner Ben Veniste. Quote, Chairman Kane asked if the president remembered seeing other intelligence about aircraft as missiles or about Islamic extremists learning to fly. No, the president said. The only report was the one about a potential hijacking for the release of prisoners mentioned in the PDB of August 6th. Bush lied to Chairman Kane. Quote, no one said there was a problem domestically, Bush told Commissioner Ben Veniste. The threat was overseas. That was what George Tenet said. New York cell, hijacking U.S. aircraft. Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. Bush lied to Commissioner Ben Veniste and blamed CIA Director Tenet. In fact, 2004, just two weeks before they met with Bush, the 9-11 commissioners met with George Tenet, the CIA director. As Insider wrote, in the spring and summer of 2001, Tenet had warned Bush no fewer than 40 separate times that a major attack by al-Qaeda was on the horizon. Analysts called the flood of warnings a, quote, threat spike and the, quote, summer of threat, unquote. George Tenet had said there was a problem domestically. Bush lied to the 9-11 Commission. Quote, Commissioner Bob Kerry asked if the CIA had done any analysis of hijacking scenarios, analysis that might have shown up some of the security problems. The president said he was unaware of such an analysis. Looking back, he commented on weakness in watch lists and the lack of hardened doors on cockpits. If someone had said, here's how Al-Qaeda would attack, there would have been a reaction. Someone had said, here's how Al-Qaeda would attack. Bush had no reaction. He lied to Commissioner Kerry. Quote, Commissioner Thompson asked if he had talked about Al-Qaeda to President Clinton during the transition. He didn't remember much being said on Al-Qaeda. There was a lot on North Korea. The president felt sure President Clinton mentioned terrorism of some kind. He shrugged, unquote. George W. Bush shrugged. Quote, Commissioner Benveniste mentioned Condi Rice's statement that nobody had thought of using airplanes as weapons. The president said that nobody ever told her about this possibility. Commissioner Benveniste said he thought the intelligence on this possibility had surely been available. The president asked if the commissioner was sure about that. Yes, Commissioner Benveniste said. The Intelligence Committee had collected a dozen instances of planned use of suicide planes 
And there were the measures to protect the G8 summit in Genoa, including a cap over Genoa and placement of anti-aircraft batteries. The president replied that nobody had said, by the way, a vulnerability of America is not to him or to Condi Rice. Bush, in essence, wanted a full line-by-line script recording every step a hijacking or other type of attack would take place and where and perhaps when, or as far as he was concerned, nobody had ever thought of using airplanes as weapons. George W. Bush lied to the 9-11 Commission. George W. Bush lied to America. It is nauseating and enraging to read Bush's failures, failures of honesty, of imagination, of leadership, even so many years later. 941 days had elapsed since 9-11, and talking to the 9-11 commissioners, George Bush was still stupid and condescending and arrogant and incapable of understanding his own role, his own provable, despicable role in the death of more than 3,000 Americans and what followed worldwide. Nearly all of the rest of the three-hour interview with the 9-11 Commission with Bush and Cheney is devoted to, or wasted on, the specifics of exactly when Bush authorized the military to shoot down any aircraft in the sky on 9-11, even a domestic American airliner, and about whether or not they thought Flight 93 had been shot down in that way, and about the chain of command, and about the disconnects between the intelligence agencies, and about Bush asking within hours if Saddam Hussein and Iraq had done this, and about such inane exchanges as, quote, Vice Chair Hamilton asked, how they thought they could make the country less vulnerable to attack, the president said they were trying to kill a lot of the enemy. They are killers. We had to kill them before they kill us. Unquote. George Bush's reputation has been improved these last seven years, but only because the next Republican president turned out to have begun his own organized crime outlet in the White House and then tried to overthrow an election and start a civil war. George Bush definitionally cannot be the worst president ever. But this declassified document, this memorandum about this interview with the 9-11 Commission, so ignored, so underplayed, proves that if Bush is only the second worst president ever, it's close. Finally and sadly... On April 29, 2004, the 9-11 Commission, in its three hours with Bush and Cheney in the Oval Office, did not ask George Bush about the reporting by author Ron Suskind that Bush raced through the president's daily briefing of August 6, 2001, the one that invoked suspicious preparations for hijackings, hijacking a U.S. aircraft and other attacks. He raced through it because he was at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, And as soon as they were done, he was going fishing. They did not ask Bush about the claim that he listened to the CIA briefer. And when the briefing was finished, Bush said to him, quote, all right, you've covered your ass now. That is what George Bush tried to do on April 29th, 2004, when he met with the 9-11 commissioners. We know this from the document just declassified. Cover his own ass. 
over the graves of more than 3,000 Americans. For more than 20 years, George Bush has largely succeeded in covering his ass. This document may, in fact, remain ignored now, tomorrow, next year, throughout our time, even in the immediate times to come. But someday in the fullness of history, the reality will not be questioned. Osama bin Laden attacked America. No one else. But George W. Bush made sure America was unprepared. No one else. Damn him to hell. Still ahead, because we have learned nothing, this fascist Kevin McCarthy now promises an investigation of the January 6th committee's investigation of Trump's coup attempt, provided McCarthy can get himself elected speaker, which is at best right now dicey. So Elon Musk was lying about Apple threatening to pull Twitter off the App Store and lying about Apple suspending virtually all advertising on Twitter. What does that make Elon Musk a liar? And much-needed humorous relief in things I promise not to tell. On my way to interview Mickey Mantle in 1985, I was stopped by an older couple so elegantly dressed that he was wearing a cape. I swear I heard his wife say the family name was Carlton. That is not what she said. It is quite the story. That's next. This is Countdown. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Alberman. Alberman. Thank you, Larry David. David. Larry doing his impression of the public address announcer at Yankee Stadium for all those years, Bob Shepard. The relevance of that to a story in the sports segment, and then it is central to things I promise not to tell. Also coming up on Countdown, a man in Tulsa now knows better than anybody in the world, never drink and play Monopoly. Worst persons ahead. First in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. I'm sorry to report to you that the dog we mentioned yesterday, Meatball, who had been starved in Staten Island, New York, did not make it. We try again in Baldwin Park in Southern California. Lucky. Please never name an animal Lucky. He's a 70-pound black and tan German shepherd adopted from the high kill shelter there. And only when they got him home did they think about this. He didn't get along with their cat. So Lucky is back in the pound and on the immediate kill list. He needs a foster or adopter or pledges to help a rescue get him out of there, and time is running out. Look for Lucky on my Twitter feed, where your retweet can do as much as a pledge could. I thank you, and Lucky thanks you. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Washington, Kevin McCarthy already billing himself as Speaker-elect, even as Republican House members say they have enough votes to keep him from being elected Speaker, has advised the House's own January 6th committee to preserve all its records and transcripts. In short, he wants to hold hearings and investigate the investigation. What Kevin didn't know was that the committee had already planned to publicly release all its transcripts and most of its records and documents. The committee is also coming out with its eight-chapter report shortly. Chairman Benny Thompson says the body of the report is complete and it should be available by Christmas. Dateline Kiev. Innovation. The BBC reporting Ukraine has established a hotline and a website for invading Russian soldiers who want to surrender. The Ukrainians say they're getting up to 100 inquiries a day, 3,500 since they put this thing online in September. They ain't kidding around. The name of the hotline is I Want to Live. No segue into this last one. Dateline CNN, hundreds of layoffs coming there despite annual profits in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Also, this is after new CNN Worldwide chairman and Grim Reaper Chris Licht promised there would be no layoffs. Did I ever mention that when we worked together at MSNBC, a lot of us thought Chris used to eat paste? In a memo to staff, Chris Licht indicated a lot of those fired would be paid contributors and closed by saying, let's take care of each other this week. Well, hell, Chris, looks to me like you just took care of a couple of hundred of them this week. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. 
Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, how is Pele? ESPN Brazil reported yesterday that the soccer immortal had been hospitalized with body-wide swelling and confusion amid cancer treatments and in the middle of the World Cup, no less. His daughter says no. Pele, 82, quote, is in the hospital regulating medication. There is no emergency or new dire prediction. Baseball. On Sunday, Don Mattingly will be one of eight players voted upon by a Hall of Fame committee. The great Yankee first baseman and former Dodgers and Marlins manager will be judged as the new bench coach of the Toronto Blue Jays. He was hired yesterday to assist their manager, John Schneider, who grew up in New Jersey as a big fan of Don Mattingly. I have known Don Mattingly for just under 40 years, and I have a dozen stories about him, but one above all others remains my favorite. For a decade, I assisted Bob Wolf on the in-stadium public address play-by-play of the Yankees' annual old-timers days. I handled facts about the players and personal stuff. In 2004, 5, 6, somewhere in there, we had a visual aid for the great Yankees pitcher of the 60s, then their pitching coach, the late Mel Stottlemyre. It was a photo of Mel having just caught a record-breaking fish. I mean, the fish was as big as he was. So I gave the details while everybody looked at the scoreboard in this picture of Mel and this fish, and I added, by the way, that's Mel on the right. The old-timers game ended, and the Yankees, including coaches Mattingly and Stottlemyre, got ready for the real game, except first, Mattingly ran over to me and said, oh my God, did you say that? I'm still laughing. That's Mel on the right. I've already said it to him three times. Hey, Mel, that's you on the right. Every time I saw Don Mattingly at Yankee Stadium until he left to go work for the Dodgers, he would not say hello. He'd just stick out a head and say, that's Mel on the right. The last time I saw Mattingly must have been 2019 when he came in here with the Marlins. And sure enough, I walk out to the dugout where Mattingly is being interviewed by reporters and he stops talking to them and looks at me and shouts, Keith, that's Mel on the right. And somebody said to me, what is that all about? And I said, Donnie, you explained it to them. Ahead. So she says to me she's a big fan of my sportscasts, and her name is Patricia Carlton, and her husband says that he's Joseph Carlton. And I keep thinking to myself, boy, aren't they nice, but who is Joseph Carlton, and why does Joseph Carlton look so familiar? This happened to me in 1985. I'll tell you the story coming up. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze John Armstrong of Tulsa, Oklahoma, arrested after a family gathering Saturday, went kind of off the rails. Furniture was turned over. Armstrong somehow got cut on the head. He then chased his stepfather and stepsister down the street, allegedly brandishing a gun. What unleashed this domestic nightmare? On a Thanksgiving weekend in Tulsa, the family was drinking and playing Monopoly. And when you get arrested for a violent game of Monopoly, you know that phrase, get out of jail free card? That takes on an entirely different meaning. The runners up, the new news outlet Semaphore, 
Well, maybe news is the wrong word here. Maybe I mean the new stenography outlet, Semaphore. It actually ran a story yesterday reading, quote, Mar-a-Lago is ramping up its screening after white supremacist Nick Fuentes was allowed into the venue to dine with Trump. A source familiar with the discussions confirmed that additional processes are being considered to ensure individuals who are scheduled to meet the president are fully vetted. Because it's not possible that Trump actually meant to dine with yet another white supremacist and anti-Semite, right? Speaking of which, our winner, Elon Musk. Remember Monday when Musk said the future of freedom and non-tyranny depended on Apple not cutting off advertising on Twitter? And that Apple had also threatened to drop Twitter from the App Store without telling him why they did that? And that led first Kevin McCarthy to say, stop picking on Elon Musk. And then Ron DeSantis to say if they didn't indeed drop the app, that Congress should respond and investigate Apple or something. It was all crap. Gizmodo reports that on the day Musk said Apple had mostly stopped advertising, it spent $84,000 on Twitter ads just that one day. And it had already crossed more than a million dollars in advertising in the first 28 days of the month of November. Musk has now tweeted that that warning about dropping the app, well, that was just a misunderstanding. They never threatened to drop the app at the App Store by Apple. Translation? He lied. Elon self-martyring drama clown Musk. Today's worst person in the world! I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. 
players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now to the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And I swear, I thought, I heard her say, Carlton. This was also December in 1985 in Los Angeles. And if you've never spent Christmas in a warm metropolitan area for the first time in your life, you do not know what disorientation really is. I had just completed three months in my new job as the sports director of Channel 5 in L.A. I had spent most of November adjusting not only to it not getting cold, but to the fact that almost nobody else noticed that it was not getting cold, except one of our production assistants who sprinted through the parking lot and up the stairs into the little bungalow on the KTLA lot in Hollywood that housed our sports department. He shivered like a dog shaking himself awake and announced, my God, it's bitter out there. Bitter. I checked. It was 49 degrees. So December 1985 was already weird enough. I was doing well in L.A., Being 3,000 miles away from everyone and everything I knew had been surprisingly helpful, and there was no ramp-up time for my work. I'd already won a couple of Best Sportscaster awards, and then the top all-news radio station was asking me to come over every afternoon and split the afternoon drive sportscasting shift with a guy who'd been on the air there literally for 30 years, who's one of the voices in the background in The Godfather Part 2. And now, somehow... My producer, Ron Grelnick, and I were headed to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel to go interview Mickey Mantle. For the average L.A. sportscaster, there really wasn't much reason to interview Mickey Mantle, which is why all of them at the bigger three network stations had turned down the offer of a sit-down interview. But I was a New Yorker and had been three months earlier, and thus Mickey Mantle was my idol. And moreover, when I became a baseball fan in 1967, my folks bought tickets specifically behind first base at Yankee Stadium because they had just moved Mantle there from the outfield. And as my dad said, when you are an old man, you will say the greatest thing you ever saw in baseball was Mickey Mantle. So you might as well see as much of him as you can. Well, I'm an old man now, and my dad was exactly right. Mantle was on a tour publicizing some kind of hitting video, and he would do one exclusive interview with an L.A. station at, like, exactly 5 p.m. on that night in December 1985. And to get it, you had to agree to give the video exactly one plug and ask him one question about it. But otherwise, you could ask whatever you wanted. You had 15 minutes, then he was going out to dinner. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Dinner. So Ron and I pulled up to the Beverly Wilshire in his car, and I had never been in, but I had walked past it a dozen times, and I knew there was a new wing and an old wing, and as Ron tried to park, I tried to find the room where Mantle would be waiting for us so I could be there to meet the camera crew that was joining us from some other shoot somewhere, and also because he was Mickey Mantle. I had met him before. I had even interviewed him briefly for CNN, but nothing like this, nothing like a sit-down interview, just me and him. The room number was something like 897. 
could have been 597, could have been 1297, but it was basically the highest number there could be on a given hotel floor. And I saw the elevator just past the registration desk and up I went to the eighth floor and it was a deserted labyrinth. Turn after turn and nobody there. And then suddenly I turned a corner and walking towards me was the most elegantly dressed older couple I had ever seen to that point or since. She was wearing a mink stole atop a beautiful gown and she had a diamond necklace big enough to induce cramps. She had a piercing, glistening set of deep brown eyes. She looked to be in her mid to late 50s, but might have been older. He was older, maybe 80, but with a full head of thick and wiry hair. He was tall, thin, extraordinarily elegant in a perfect tuxedo. But all of this was overwhelmed, almost erased by one fact that startles me still 37 years later. This man was wearing... A cape. I'm pretty confident that I had never seen a man wearing a cape before. I know I have not seen one since I have been looking, and yet it looked so good on him that I can recall briefly thinking, Keith, maybe you should buy a cape. This couple was perfect. We seemed to be the only people on the floor. The hallway wasn't all that wide. I said, good evening. As I passed, she said, good evening. And in so doing, revealed a British accent. And he mumbled, good evening, and revealed what sounded like the lingering minor aftermaths of a minor stroke. They walked their way. I walked mine. And my focus returned to finding Mickey Mantle in room 897. The numbers of the rooms I was passing were like 811 and 814, and after a few more turns of the labyrinth, it dawned on me that I must be in the old wing of the Beverly Wilshire, and the high numbers like 897 must have been in the new wing of the Beverly Wilshire. I also noticed that I had not passed a doorway or a vestibule or some kind of connecting bridge to the new wing, so I had better make it back to the elevator and the lobby before Ron or the camera crew made the same mistake I had because Mickey Mantle was waiting. I reversed course. I began to trot. After three or four more of these labyrinthine turns, I found, to my shock, that the perfectly elegant older couple, he was wearing a cape, was standing exactly where I had left them. She laughed. She mentioned something about the higher numbers being in the new wing, and everybody made that mistake. I thanked her. And then she said, you're the young man who does the sports on the television, aren't you? And I had gotten pretty popular pretty fast there, but being recognized was still very surprising, and pleasantly so. And I said that, and I introduced myself. So nice to meet you, she said. I'm Patricia Carlton, and this, she pointed to the guy in the cape, is my husband. He slowly extended a hand, but shook mine vigorously. And I'm Joseph Carlton. Mrs. Carlton was very excited. You know, Joe and I, we really are not fans of the sports. But whenever we're at home in Palm Springs, we make sure we stay up until the end of the 10 o'clock news so we can watch you. Joe nodded and smiled in the cape. You're so clearly enjoying yourself that we find ourselves enjoying it too. That's really quite remarkable. I was genuinely touched and remained so. I explained my dilemma I treated them as you are supposed to treat viewers, gratefully and solicitously, and I asked them if they were going to the lobby and if I might walk with them so I didn't get any further lost. We'd be delighted. I must ask you, Mr. Fishman, who does the news on your program, is that his real hair? She saw my shock at the question. 
Joe and I have often worn wigs, and we can't be certain. That means if it is a wig, it's a good one. We reached the elevator bank, and I pushed down. He was walking slowly. He must have had a stroke. Still, he was an imposing figure of a man, and not just because he was wearing a cape. As I steered them away from the subject of our anchorman's toupee and talked instead about my Mickey Mantle interview, I realized he looked extremely familiar, like I knew him. Joseph Carlton. Kept rolling the name over in my mind. And Patricia Carlton. Who are they? The elevator light went off and a very loud bell sounded. The doors opened and there was my producer, Ron, and the two-man camera crew, and the reporter who had been with them on the previous story, Sam Chu Lin, who had stayed with them because he wanted to meet Mickey Mantle. And as I joked to my new friends, Joe and Patricia Carlton, oh, look, here's my camera crew. Its four members made no motion to even leave the elevator. They all looked dumbstruck. Sam Chu Lin's eyes looked like they were about to pop out of his head. I assumed this was because my new friend Joe was wearing a cape. Finally, I got the crew to move. I held the door open so Joe and Patricia could get into the elevator. I actually said, such a pleasure to meet you. And of course, thank you so much for watching Channel 5 News at 10. And she smiled warmly and he managed a quick wave and the doors closed. And only at that exact moment did it dawn on me where I knew him from. The blood now drained from my face as I turned to talk to the camera crew and Ron and Sam. Uh, you guys knew who those two people were, right? Sam laughed at me. Of course we did, didn't you? And I sighed. Oh my God, she said her name was Patricia Carlton. And that was her husband, Joseph Carlton. And she said it that way because she's British. And that's how, if you're British, you would say the name Cotton. She's Patricia Cotton. And he's Joseph Cotton, who was in Citizen Kane. I remember I actually put my hand on the wall and my face in my other hand. I just met Joseph Cotton and I didn't recognize him. And the cameraman, Martin Clancy, who also often said things like this, said, pretty stupid of you, huh? And I said, you know, you have no idea how stupid. I mean, obviously, I know who Joseph Cotton is. And Sam Chulin said, you sure about that? I gave him a dirty look and I said, no, no, it's worse than this. In 1948, the president of the International Joseph Cotton Fan Club was my mother. There is a picture of that man with my mother from like 37 years ago at the Stork Club. They all laughed. Then Sam Chulin said, uh, in that photo, is he wearing that cape? My gaffe did serve to relax me a little for the interview with Mantle. My gaffe, when I get over it, I'll let you know. So anyway, we all reached room 897 or whatever it was in the new wing of the Beverly Wilshire. And as the crew set up, I managed to tell the story of the Cottons to Mickey Mantle. And he said, yeah, I saw them in the lobby a couple hours ago. He's a great actor. I met him in New York. Must be 30 years ago. Did you say hi? Oh, right. You just told me you didn't recognize him. Mickey Mantle was busting my chops. As I said, I had met him before, even interviewed him before, but this was our first sit-down, and he was in a good mood, even expansive and playful. And at one point, he stunned me. 
I said, I know you only have a couple minutes left, so so forgive me if I'm bringing up something that takes more than a couple minutes. And he interrupted, and he said, take as much time as you need. I'm enjoying us talking. So I asked him about this one subject, how he felt about what he did in his career, considering how injured he was. When he retired, Mickey Mantle was third all-time in homers. He hit 310 times. He played in 12 World Series on one bad knee and one worse knee. Mantle got very reflective and self-critical. We used this soundbite at the end of his obituary that I would do for ESPN a decade later. If I'd known I was going to live so long, he told me, I would have taken better care of myself and done better. I said, well, he'd done pretty good. I could have done better. I thanked him. Then as the cameraman moved to get the shots of me nodding and repeating a question or two, Mickey Mantle said, that was really good. I flushed. I got to ask you something. Can you give me some pointers? I suddenly had no idea what the word pointers meant. Pointers? What are pointers? Mantle said he was going to do some Yankee games the next year on cable with Mel Allen. I'm doing interviews after games. I'm no damn good at interviews. Just now you were moving from topics to topics so smooth. How do you keep all the questions in your head? Now I laughed. I didn't keep them in my head. Didn't you see my cheat card? And he laughed and he said no, and I showed it to him. I said, it's just a business card with like seven key words written on the back. If I think I might freeze up because I'm nervous, because I'm interviewing Mickey Mantle, or I just met Joseph Cotton and I didn't recognize him, I make one of these cards, I hide it in the palm of my hand, and if I get stuck, I can just look down quickly and see one of the words, and I've got the question, I've got this card to remind me. Mickey Mantle's eyes glowed. But wait, he said, we're using these mics, and he pointed to the clip-on on his shirt, so, so you don't have to hold a mic. What do you do if you have to hold the mic like I'll have to in an interview after a ball game? What if the card would fall out, or you have to shake hands with the player? And I said, well, just write the words on your hand. Whichever hand is holding the mic, like below the thumb. Mickey Mantle looked at me as if I had just given him the secret of eternal life. Wow! He said, that's great. I'm going to write this down. Thanks. And we were packed up, and he actually walked me to the hotel room door and gave me a double-handed handshake. So it had been a big day. Even if I didn't realize it was Joseph Cotton, Mickey Mantle had asked me for advice about anything. Somehow I had thought of something to tell him, and he was really happy about the advice. And, of course, this provided a punchline the following spring. We were in the studios at KTLA watching on the satellite feed as the Yankees' first cable telecast of the 1986 season ended, and sure enough, they threw it down to Mickey Mantle on the field interviewing some player, and one of my producers said, oh, let's see if he remembers the lesson you gave him, and another one said, here's your student, Mickey Mantle, and sure enough, after the first answer, Mickey Mantle pauses, and I know he can't remember what he wanted to ask next, and sure enough, I see him cheat his look down slightly towards the hand, holding the microphone, and the next thing I see, he's kind of tilted the microphone sideways and he's asking the question but you can barely hear him because the mic is pointing off at a 45 degree angle because he has written his key reminder words not below the thumb on the outside part of his hand but on the palm side of his hand and he's had to move the mic out of the way to read the words on the palm of his hand and the producer says 
<laughs> well, now Mickey Mantle hates you. He was wearing a cape. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. If you're not following or subscribed to this podcast or whatever, please do so if you would be so kind. Stop somebody on the street, ask them to as well. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Larry David. Capes by Joseph Cotton of Beverly Hills. Everything else is uh, pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 695th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. We'll have a new edition for you tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.